Welcome to the Death Studies podcast, a podcast dedicated to the breadth and diversity of voices in and around the academic field of death studies. With your hosts, Dr. Renske Visser and Dr. Bethan Michael Fox. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Death Studies podcast. Beth, how are you this morning? I am well, thank you. It's very early. It's about to be October. The weather's a changing. I'm going to need to switch up my duvet for the thick one soon. And I'm happy about it and I'm sad about it. It's big changes. Autumn is one of my favorite seasons because of, yeah, the because of sweater weather, but also that it's getting cozy and you bring out your candles. But it's I, it always amazes me in Finland how quickly the days are getting shorter because it's like five to ten minutes each day and you yesterday afternoon at some point I realized I was working at my desk in the dark because outside had gone dark suddenly I've started (laughs) to take my vitamin d again and like there's the artificial lights I need to sit in front because otherwise seasonal depression will hit me hard yeah do you like those I've heard they're good but I have not got one I think they really help. Yeah, it, it, yeah. You just need that kick in the morning to get you going. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'll look into it. Let's discuss off pod, off pod. Yeah. <laughs> so this episode today, I think, is another wonderful one. But before we get into it, I see you've got something very lovely looking in your hands. Yes. So we've both been sent a copy of the Dead Handbook: Stories from Graves and Cemetery by Lady Sarah Richard. And it's a lovely little book. The Dead Handbook is a memorial to mortality and the ancestral liaison with death through quiet and sweetly macabre short stories. And it's a really lovely pocket-sized book with amazing illustrations done by Lady Sarah Richard. And I don't know about you, but I also received some enamel pins she designed. So I have this little teacup with a skull on it with a hand coming out um, holding something I'm terrible at describing so listeners if this doesn't make any sense to you I'm terribly sorry go on twitter and uh, and I'll tweet a picture (laughs) you can get the visual yeah it's a lovely little I think self-illustrated book yes I mean I had to look her up because it's so beautiful it was it was such a beautiful thing to have in the post and it's a really visually rewarding and rich little book it's fabulous so I had a little look and I was like first of all why are you lady and that is apparently because her ladyship title comes from owning two small conservation plots in Scotland a place that greatly influences Sarah's artwork and symbolizes her interest in conservation work so yeah super cool and really interestingly as well Sarah is the great granddaughter of Margaret Scott a victim of the Salem witch trials and the 26th great-granddaughter of Eleanor of Aquitaine, a historical and a history and genealogy enthusiast. Sarah studies and collects antique funeral artefacts in the hopes to open her own Memento Mori micro-museum, which would be super cool again, and is based in New Hampshire, which is in the US, right? New Hampshire, mm-hmm. not Old Hampshire, which is uh, in England, I guess. And I was interested to read also that she volunteers with her mum, which is really good because it gives a really nice mum theme to today's episode. But she <laughs> volunteers with her mum 
in a team of gravestone preservers and recorders, which I, I'm guessing is where this book has come from because it's pictures, really beautifully illustrated pictures of graves. And she's illustrated over 100 comic books for things like Marvel and DC Comics. So there's clearly that illustration is like a really talented skill and, and it's just so beautiful. And these really short stories. So when I was looking at it and reading it, I was thinking like, oh, now would be a good time to mention it on a podcast because it's October. The, the big C of Christmas is coming up in a couple of months and it might be a nice gift for anyone who's looking for something for a a friend who's interested in the death positive movement or morbid curiosities and things like that because it's it's very sweet it's very readable and I was saying to Aretzka it's also the delight of getting a gift that's a present that's a book which is lovely everyone loves books but also some of us have so much reading to do anyway that another book is both a joy and a slight anxiety of when am I going to find time to read it? So a book that's really beautiful that can just sit on your coffee table and you can flick through as you're making a cup, cup of tea or something like that, I think is brings you those little delight of a sort of frisson of something that will be lovely in your day. I agree. And also, not just the big C, it's also the big age at the end of this month with Halloween. So if you just want to display this book in your home, it will be a great one to have. That's true. Gift yourselves. We should be encouraging people to give themselves <laughs> away from the consumerism. And you mentioned mothers. And yeah, our guest today, Dr. Gillian A. Tullis, has, I feel, a brilliant mum. And if people remember from uh, the episode with John Troyer, where he mentioned that she copy edited a lot of his book, we've now also found a guest whose mum, again, is reading all their work. And I don't know, Beth, is your mum proofreading all your work before it goes out? Weirdly enough, <laughs> no. No, my mum doesn't proofread everything I, I write. She has done a bit for me in the past, I think, at key moments and times, but she's got five kids. That would be a lot of uh, a lot of stuff to look at. My mum used to proofread, like, university papers and stuff like that it would be like something we do together oh that's cute at some point we stopped also I think it didn't help when I moved to the UK it became a bit more difficult to do that but yeah it is something because she didn't speak English so well yeah and also it used to be I for the listener I used to <laughs> live on the flat under my parents so I literally go up the stairs <laughs> to my parents because I lived on the ground floor and they were on the first floor and it would be something yeah over a cup of coffee working together also because I come from a family of teachers so it was this it feels quite natural to do that and to talk about school assignments in a big way <laughs> and were, were those school assignments in Dutch or in English both in Dutch and I think the first few things I wrote in English but at some point yeah there was there is a limit to my mom's ability to understand English but it was also I think like uh, Gillian will talk about in this episode if my mom didn't understand how I explained a concept, I should probably change the sentence. So it was this, if a lay person doesn't understand it, I should probably change what I've written. Lovely. Well, let's kick off with Dr. Gillian A. Tulis. Um, Gillian is an associate professor in the Department of Communication Studies at the University of San Diego. Her teaching and research interests focus on health communication specifically communication about dying and death in healthcare settings. She returned to her home state, joining the faculty at the University of San Diego in 2015, after serving on the faculty at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte for six years. Dr. Tulis 
is former chair of the Ethnography Division of the National Communication Association and continues to serve on the editorial boards of the Journal of Loss and Trauma and Qualitative Research in Medicine and Healthcare and is editor of the Critical Interventions Forum of Departures in Critical Qualitative Research. She's currently conducting research about definitions of a good death. We hope you really enjoy this episode, which we think is really rich and rewarding about death, dying, methodologies and amazing mums. So Gillian, thank you so much for being with us today. We're very excited to have you. And our first question is always quite broad. So could you tell us a bit about yourself, your research career to date, and particularly uh, your research interests? Well, thank you again for having me. I appreciate it. I I guess I always tell people when they ask me why I study what I study, I have two ways of kind of answering that question. First, I had a professor when I was going to a community college that looked at me one year at the start of like an academic year and said, why are you still here? <laughs> why? Like I had overstayed my welcome, you know, community college is supposed to be more like a two year process and not that I had overstayed my welcome, but he was like, it's time for you to move, move on. You know, it's time for you to move to the next level. So when I went to transfer to the four-year university in my town, they had a great program where you could do like an easy transfer process. So I went to, I think it was called like River City Days or something like that. I went to the campus, I talked to a counselor and she said, well, Jillian, what do you want your, what do you want your major to be? And I said, I, you know, I don't know, you know. And she said, well, you're a junior. You need to pick something. <laughs> like she just point blank, you know, um, called me out. And I said, well, I always like my communication classes. How about communication studies? And she said, all right, I'm signing you up. And so that's kind of how I, I ended up in the discipline of communication studies. I've kind of stuck with it ever since. I always liked how applicable it was. I could see the theories and the practices and the concepts that we were learning in those classes, I could see them playing out in my day-to-day life. And so I really, that really spoke to me quite a lot. And I think then, you know, when it comes to like, how did I come to study dying and death and end of life issues? I always tell another story, which is that I was in my master's program and I had an assignment. I think the assignment was that we had to pick a, a, a singular topic and we would look at that topic from a bunch of different methodological you know, methods. And so one week it would be like conversation analysis. The next week it would be um, something you know, to do with like statistics. And at the same time, I, my mom and I had been talking about this TV show on HBO called Six Feet Under. And it's about a family-run funeral home. And at the beginning of every episode, there was a death. And so my mom and I found we were having these really kind of enlightening conversations, speaking very freely. And this was very different from my childhood, from my youth, when somebody in our family would die. I felt like, huh, there's something here, you know. And so I decided in that, for that assignment, that I would pick dying and talk about dying specifically as kind of the focus, which then forced me into the literature. And I, of course, found that, at least in communication studies, there wasn't a whole lot of scholarship. And if there was scholarship, it wasn't looking at the point or the type of communication that I was interested in. I was interested in that communication that was happening like my mom (laughs) and I were having, you know, all the stuff that happens before somebody dies, for example. So anyway, that's how really how I got started. I 
been pretty much doing both of those things ever since. And I can't, I can't seem to shake it. <laughs> Great. And I also think Beth will be particularly pleased that television is part of your origin story because Beth is our main television and death specialist on this podcast. And you mentioned your research interest is in communication and end-of-life care. And you've written an article with Laurie A. Roscoe, which is called The Meaning of Everything, Communication at the End of Life, which is around the communication between patients and doctors and where patients say they want to do, quote-unquote, everything or have, quote-unquote, everything done. I'm so glad you asked about this project, uh, this paper, because I, I think Laurie and I think it's it's trying to say something that we think is an important kind of question to, that we should be asking, not just not just uh, physicians perhaps asking, but also us as individuals, as potential patients, which is what do we really mean by everything? And if somebody presents us with the option, if a physician in this case, in the case of this particular article, presents us with the option of everything, what does that really involve? What does that actually look like? What are the kind of physiological, biological consequences of doing everything. So I think sometimes people work under the assumption that everything is will, will accomplish the most good. But sometimes, as we know, doing everything can actually cause the most harm. Sometimes that care can be futile. Sometimes it can be incredibly painful, you know, and also very sometimes graphic for family members to observe, you know, to experience. And it doesn't necessarily lead to really wonderful or amazing outcomes, right? So, you know, we know, for example, that just because somebody has CPR doesn't mean they're going to get up and walk out of the hospital 15 minutes later or at the end of a 22-minute episode, which is what we see on television often, right? Um, I think what happens is that there are lots of cracked ribs. People are sometimes debilitated. They don't, they don't even necessarily recover. So we were asking this question, and it was really spurned on by an article that we read by a physician that said, you know, my, I asked the patient, did they want everything? And they said, of course, I want everything. And we thought, oh, this is like not how, there's no nuance here. There's no nuance here. And as communication people, I think we were really interested in ways that if we, if we hear that question as a family member, loved one, or even as a patient, that we can maybe ask better questions and advocate. But hopefully also that if uh, healthcare professionals are presenting that option, if they're presenting medical care in a do you want me to do everything kind of way, that is equally problematic and can and should be, you know, we need more specific questions to kind of answer, uh, to ask and then answer in order to really get at what people's wishes actually are. Because once people hear that they may not have meaningful recovery after a certain types of procedures, or if they're ventilated and that ventilation is permanent, they're less likely sometimes to to agree to do it, right? They suddenly have the big picture as opposed to this like whatever is it, whatever imagined scenario they they've created. And it also seems like if you say yes, I want to do everything, there doesn't really seem to be a middle ground between doing nothing and doing everything. And you also in the paper uh, you wrote communication training should be less about tools and scripts and more about learning to engage patients in conversations. What do you mean by that? Oh my gosh! If I could just yeah, this would probably be if I had a magic wand. This would be my like number one wish. <laughs> I think what happens is that 
We all want to believe that communication is simply about creating a perfect message. And if you can create that perfect message, then you will have perfect communication and you'll have perfect results. And I think the truth is that that's not how communication works at all, really. And I think there are some some disciplines, some professions, and I think it makes sense to me that physicians in particular would like a script. It's like a prescription. It's, you know, it's it I think that resonates with them. They want to make sure they do it right every time and of course if I can apply this perfect message to people, it will have good results. Um, but really communication is, is a negotiation. It is, you know, in order to make meaning when you're communicating with someone, you have to go back and forth. You have to know something about their values, their attitudes, their past experience, and then take your expertise in this case as a physician and bring that to bear on what a person, who a person is really. For Lori and I, we really wanted to drive home this idea that there isn't a perfect way to communicate. There's not a perfect message, but there are some better ways to communicate that will help people be more goal oriented <laughs> to be and to then maybe accomplish those goals to recognize that patient has a goal, physician has a goal, and let's let's figure out what those where where we meet up, <laughs> where you and I meet up on that. It's so interesting. And then there's also sometimes or often the third party of the patient's family or close circle who might be another level of communication and opinions and agendas. It's very complicated. This is what I tell my students like on day one, you know, we think we're all born with this ability to communicate and therefore it's all set in stone. It's done. You know, you're just, you're just born with it, this ability. But I, I really think that I want you know, my students or people that I'm, if I'm doing a workshop with a group of physicians or something, I want them to really think about communication as a skill that they can learn and develop. And that it's not like you're just naturally born with the abilities and that we've sometimes may have learned not great, not so great ways to communicate um, from our mentors, you know, from our family members. If I can chip away at that idea that, that we're all born with this like ability and therefore nothing can be done beyond that, then, then I feel like I've accomplished something. And you are the lead author on the paper, Resisting the Hospice Narrative in Pursuit of Quality of Life. And this reveals some really insightful things about uh, how those at the end of life might feel about end of life care. And it might touch upon some of the things we are talking about, um, how patients might have different narratives or ideas compared to the doctors or physicians that are caring for them. So could you tell us a bit about that paper and also more generally about the U.S. hospice care system? Yeah, I think that that article really comes about because, at least in the in U.S. hospice system, the, the philosophy of, of hospice care says, we're going to come alongside a patient and their family, uh, whoever they designate as family, and we are going to meet them where they are and then provide good end-of-life care. And that involves attending to someone's physical pain, and their emotional or spiritual pain. And I think that's a beautiful philosophy. I think it's it makes sense to me to enter into this like really critical important time in someone's life and and meet them where they are. But I think over time what I observed and um, what my colleagues 
in this case, I also co-authored this with Lori Roscoe and then Patrick Dillon. What we were starting, what we were wondering is, is is this really happening? Like, you know, what happens? We had these instances where we would see people kind of not fit neatly into a particular mold, or they would have some type of conflict with the hospice team. And sometimes the staff would interpret that conflict as somebody being difficult. You know, they're, they're not following along with the plan. And I'd say, well, wait a minute, like whose plan? <laughs> I thought I, we thought, I thought that it was their plan. I thought it was the patient's plan that they were supposed that we, that the hospice team was supposed to be honoring. And I often say we about myself as a member of the hospice team, because I was, I was shadowing hospice teams <laughs> at the time. So um, I was not on the necessarily on the side of the patient or the family, but certainly observing these interactions. And I say, well, what, you know, if, if the patient doesn't want to follow a particular planned protocol, they don't want to take their pain meds at a particular time, shouldn't they be allowed to do that, right? Shouldn't they be allowed to do that? And instead of interpreting, automatically interpreting that as a means of conflict or some type of resistance, shouldn't we be asking ourselves, shouldn't the hospice team be asking maybe why this person doesn't want to take their meds at that at that particular time? Because sometimes if we just ask why, we find out that the person is not lucid. They want to be lucid when their loved one comes to visit. They want to be able to communicate with that person or they want to be able to simply be aware of what's going on, even if they're not having a lot of conversation, for example. I had a very kind of memorable, I had a couple of memorable experiences, but one patient in particular refused to get in the hospital bed, even though he had COPD. And he was having very a lot of difficulty breathing. And the, the hospice nurse knew that if he got in the hospital bed, he would be able to breathe better because he could sit upright, he could, and then he could be comfortable. He was spending all this time in an office chair um, because he could he could sit upright and get more airflow. But the you know, she never asked the question why he wouldn't get in the bed. She never inquired with him. And I think what what many people come to learn is that the bed is becomes a, a symbol that the end is really near. And it becomes a symbol that that you're not able to care for yourself in the same way that you used to be able to. So if we if that conversation had been had been facilitated, we could have maybe gotten to the, now maybe he wouldn't have ever agreed to get into the hospital bed, right? Um or maybe in in his case he agreed this particular patient agreed at the, you know, within days of his death, right? It was only the final days of his life. But I mean that should have been his choice as opposed to him being described as difficult or, you know, people giving up on the idea. And I've seen this kind of play out in some pretty terrible ways, even after having written this this particular article, where it, it really was not a particularly positive experience for the family or for the person that was dying, because nobody would have just asked the question or, or try to figure out how to, how to uh, problem solve, really. It was like, we, we, have, a, we have a way of, of doing this in hospice, and, we're, and we kind of want you, we were kind of concluding at the end of this article that we want patients to fit into this this mold of how hospice care is delivered as opposed to kind of the flexibility that that hospice was was claiming to offer. And not every hospice, I know that <laughs> maybe that goes without saying, and not every hospice team and not every in, interaction, but um, we certainly saw enough of it that that it raised our raised our curiosity. As you say, because hospice care seems to be based around the notion of choice and what patients want. So it's fascinating to 
look at it that way. Also, I particularly I like the concept of narratives of resistance, which also resonate. I've done research on cancer care in prison, and people for treatment have to be moved from prison to hospitals, and sometimes patients don't want to go and they'll refuse to go. But no one was kind of unpacking that resistance of why did they refuse? They will just say, oh, did not attend, didn't want to go as if they weren't caring about their own health. So I just find it fascinating that also in hospice care, similar issues occur. And then with your research, and I think also this project on hospice care, a lot of your work is ethnographic research, and then sometimes also auto-ethnographic. So in the handbook of autoethnography, uh, which was published by Taylor and Francis, you wrote about autoethnography <laughs> as a method of inquiry and its ethical implications. Can you talk a bit about the method and the implications? And also, as someone trained in anthropology myself, I always find it fascinating how there is, on the one hand, praise for this method, and on the other hand, so much criticism for it being self-evolved and navel-gazing, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Yes, I always say I'm a reluctant autoethnographer if if at, if I can even claim to be an autoethnographer mostly because I don't want people to know that much about me <laughs> is really the truth. I I like a little bit of anonymity and a little bit of protection and you know, but I definitely see a lot of value in autoethnography. I, my advisor is an autoethnographer, Carolyn Ellis, and I have lots of colleagues that I, you know, in my doctoral program that have gone on to be wonderful autoethnographers. I do think that there is really quite a lot of knowledge we can get from personal narrative, but I do think it can be done poorly. <laughs> I do think it can be it can be a slog sometimes, you know, I think that not, and I think that we have to, I guess my, my ultimate feeling about this applies to any method and it certainly applies to autoethnography is that your, your question should really drive the method. And, um, some, some people may only ask autoethnographic questions, right. And so then maybe it makes sense for them to, to go back to autoethnography consistently. But I think what that really for me, what that really says is we should be asking ourselves what method will best help us understand the the phenomena that we're trying to understand, you know, that we're trying to explore. So I, you know, caution anybody who comes to me and says, I want to do an autoethnography. I said, you need to think about these ethical implications that I write about in this particular chapter, because it is it is more complicated than perhaps other methods of inquiry. You are using your personal experience, which inherently implicates other people, whether you like it or not. I mean, you know, if you're claiming it's an autoethnography, you're claiming it's about you. And that means that the people around you are are somehow implicated in it. And they may not be too cool and keen on that idea. They may not have really, the, you know, some people don't have the training to sometimes understand what that means. And if you have to say something that is less than flattering about somebody, or you feel like you need to, you know, if there's a type of honesty that you're trying to tap into about an experience, then um, other people sometimes, they don't want to relive those things the same way that, that we may want to relive them when we're doing autoethnography. It was really important for me to take the lessons that I got from my, my mentors and 
put it down on paper in this particular chapter to really get people to think about this as a method, right? And so maybe in some ways it was probably good that I, as a reluctant autoethnographer, I was the person to take on this this particular chapter. I remember a couple of years ago, after I had my first daughter, a friend and I did an like, autoethnographic video talking about breastfeeding beyond infancy, like slightly older children and the kind of reactions we got to that. And in hindsight, I think I was like too in it at the time. <laughs> too and I, because it was just so and I look back and I think I really enjoyed doing it with her but some of the stuff that got included I wouldn't have included I feel like it's a tricky one to put time between yourself and that kind of thing yeah I mean I think one of my advisors Nick Trujillo he, he was one of my mentors he he really said you know critical distance is important and so I think you know also thinking about thinking about whether or not you have enough space between the experience and and what you have to say about the experience because you know time makes you feel differently you know when you're in the midst of something everything's heightened and and which can be good for the method right for the you know for the outcomes or the observations but sometimes you need a little bit of space to say am I still as fired up about this as I was when you know when I was going through it so he always talked about critical distance sometimes being a really important element. And I had a, I had a student once that this was in the master, when I was teaching in a master's program, I was teaching a class, I think it was about health communication. And she wanted to write about an experience about the experience of having a son with a disability. And I said, you can, I'm happy to let you write about it in the class. I said, I'm just going to, you know, give you a little warning that it could be very emotional experience. And sometimes bringing up emotions that are pretty intense or that you didn't even know were intense. And she went ahead and wrote about it, wrote a beautiful paper in the class, decided she wanted to present it at a conference and barely got through the presentation because she got very emotional, which is fine, which I think is totally normal, but she barely got through the presentation. Here she is in a room full of strangers, basically crying, you know, and then at the end, when it's the Q&A period, she had to field questions, some, some of which were critical. You know, I think she really realized that it was still very raw. She had thought she had done a lot of processing about it, but it was still a very raw experience for her. I always think this is exactly the type of thing that I want people to really spend some time contemplating. Um, and some people push through, you know, and, and do it, want to do it no matter what. And that's that's fine. But I always think like, just, you know, how, how prepared are you to open up those, those experiences again? So one of the things that I say to people about autoethnography that I think maybe doesn't occur to them is it sometimes doesn't go through a typical ethics review process. And so what I suggest to them is think about your project through your institution's ethics review. That's one thing I just recommend. It's going to seem weird because it doesn't ask any questions, oftentimes related to a method like autoethnography. You know, how many participants will there be? You know, that type of thing. But to think about the questions, what they're asking in terms of the kinds of categories that exist. You know, are we talking about how do you protect things like confidentiality? What is, what is, where is justice? And, you know, are you doing minimal harm to people? And so I think there are some basic foundations of ethical principles, at least in the U.S. in our in our institutional review board process that can be helpful. But I also suggest that people 
consider things like, do you have the right to write about others without their consent? So do you need to do a consent process with them, even if it's not something that is sanctioned through your university or your organization? What, what are going to be the effects of the stories that you tell on your relationships with people? So if you are writing about abusive relationship or something along those lines, even if the relationship is over, you know, what will, what will the consequences of, of that work be? You know, and how much detail will you be putting into a story, right? And how much detail is really necessary to get to the goals or the kind of moral of your story, right? Do you, so do you, have to, do you have to be very graphic? Some people are in a school of thought where the more detail, the more that you can bring people into the experience and, and create like a visual imagery for them, the better they can understand the experience. Or is there a way, and sometimes is it necessary to cover up, you know, disguise some of the details? <laughs> I think another question is, you know, are you, are you writing it because it's more convenient for you as opposed to whether or not it is the best approach or it is, people would joke with me and in the joke sometimes would be in graduate school or in other circles, like, oh, I'll just write an autoethnography. That's how I'll avoid all of the pitfalls of, you know, certain types of scholarship. And I was like, sweetie, that is not the way to avoid the pitfalls, right? So are you doing it because you think it's going to be convenient that you can uh, you can sidestep uh, ethics review, for example, because I'm just using my own personal story, right? Um, so I think that is another, <laughs> you know, another question to ask. And then I, I say, you know, would you be willing to let the people that you are writing about read your work, read what you say about them? Right? I think these are like some questions to really you know, for us to consider, because if you have any pause about whether or not you would show this work to somebody, then you should probably take a step back, talk to some people, figure out a way to either tell, like convey the same message without, you know, implicating those people if you can, right? Because I think ultimately, we don't want to do harm to other people, right? We, that is not our, our goal in scholarship is to hurt people. If you, you know, and if that is somehow in the back of someone's mind, I would really, you know, if you were, oh, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to tell somebody how I really feel, you know, I would, I would really caution somebody against that. There are other better ways to do that therapy, mediation, you know, with your partner or whatever, you know, there are other better ways to get a billboard. It's probably better than, you know, than uh, taking this particular route because you also then, or sharing this this work with colleagues and peers and and it has a, it has an afterlife right it carries on beyond the pages so so i think those are things just some of the things that we should be considering and listening to you and call you call yourself a reluctant ethnographer but you have written a paper called the death of an ex-spouse lessons in family communication about disenfranchised grief so you have put that out there so I'm curious to <laughs> learn more about that paper and perhaps could you also because I think this is the first time on the podcast we touch upon the concept of disenfranchised grief if you could explain that and also why did you write this paper how did you write this paper and the process of deciding what to put in and what perhaps to leave out yes yeah, so yes I I did <laughs> reluctantly <laughs> write this piece thank you for calling me out about that um 
it was such an interesting, this was one of those times where it was a, a series of things that kind of came together. I was supposed to be writing for a special, the special issue and the editor came back and said, there are like half more than half of the chapters were going to all kind of be around the same topic. And I, I feel like it was going to be hospice related or something, you know, something along those lines. I don't even remember now what, what the conversations were, but I thought, well, what, what could, what else could I write about? You know, what else could I contribute to this piece given the kind of timing of everything? And, um, you know, I had just recently learned about the, the death of my, my ex-husband and I thought, well, maybe I can, maybe I can do this. Maybe I can, I can write this story. And I don't think it was like immediate. I don't think it was like, you know, within days, even, or weeks, probably more like months or, or longer. But I thought, well, could I do it? You know, could I, and would I be willing to do it? Would it be worth me putting, putting this information out there? And I felt like ultimately it would be because of, the lesson that it would it would it would perhaps teach us about disenfranchised grief and what how what it is how it happens what it looks like and so um, disenfranchised grief is a type of grief that happens in response to a loss that goes unacknowledged or is not you know not I would say I say unacknowledged sometimes it's stigmatized sometimes so um, some examples that are used in the literature are if someone is gay or lesbian. And, or, or trans, for that matter, non-binary, and they have a partner, there may be an instance where family doesn't involve them in the dying process, doesn't allow them to be at the bedside, doesn't allow of that person to attend the funeral of their loved one. And so, you know, this is a type of stigmatized, you know, I think in our culture, it's gotten a lot better, but there was a time when this was a very stigmatized type of relationship. And um, family members would, would just omit uh, the, the loved one, right? The same-sex partner or, or even, you know, husbands, wives, and, and eliminate them from the experience. Um, and so they never have a chance. They never have the formal elements of, of death, like a funeral or a memorial. They never get to experience those things in a way. And then in turn, their, their grief is unacknowledged and, and disenfranchised. And so, I mean, in my case, I, nobody, nobody from my ex-husband's uh, family c- contacted me. Um, I found out from a friend of mine and I found out via text message. And I, I was really grappling with at the time, you know, when it was, when this was all unfolding, how, how should I respond? What is my obligation when you're an ex, you know, and you have not been in communication with someone for quite a long time, you know, what is my role? What is my expectation and then how do I manage my own grief? Am I allowed to grieve? You know, I had many questions in response to this particular death, right? That were not, they weren't clear. There's no, there's no like book, you know, that says this is what an ex-spouse is supposed to do. And so of course, you know, I, I went forward. I felt like I had, I felt like I could be honest and not, and not be, and not be cruel. You know, I, I it wasn't, I didn't feel like I was coming from a place of, of, you know, wanting to hurt anybody or anything like that. I felt like my goals were, were pretty clear. And so I felt like I could do it and, and maybe carry it off. And then I let some other people tell me whether or not it was good enough to, to accomplish my goals, which was to talk about like, here's a real life. Here's what it looks like in real life when somebody goes through this experience. One of the things that I, I try to do in this piece, and I recommend to, that students do also, or new, new 
people that are new to autoethnography is to sit down and write out the whole story and to capture, just do like one draft beginning to end. And, you know, that can be, you know, an outline, even style, but I had to think about like, okay, what are the chain of events that, that are kind of critical? So I sat down and did that and then went back and, you know, tried to add some of the details. Cause you know, when you're doing that first draft, you know, you got to just, I, for me, I have to pound out whatever story is there. And then I wanted to think about, okay, so what are some of the critical points in the story? You know, obviously getting the, getting the text message, you know, calling my mom, right. <laughs> um, seeing the obituary that, that was produced and, and published in the, in the paper. Uh, then, you know, then really having to think about how could I um, really want, I wanted to, sh- to show, it wasn't that, it wasn't about my relationship with this person and the end of this relationship that I wanted to highlight. What I really wanted to highlight was that I could still, how, how was I going to figure out how to grieve this? So then I had, I had to write another kind of scene, like what, okay, what would allow me to feel part of the, a part of the process, so to speak. And so I had to figure out like, so that was some of that becomes the, the actual, like you're doing the very thing that you're trying to study, you know, so I wanted to, so I wrote my own obituary, for example, because I wanted to kind of, I felt like they didn't capture this person that I knew. And so I wanted to go back and I felt like that was also a way for me to in some ways convey that I didn't, I didn't have hard feelings. Like I, that there was some, I, I I felt like I wanted to say like, okay, I understand perhaps why, you know, I was not included, but I want to make, I want to have something to contribute. You know, I wanted to make my offering. And then I also always think that really good autoethnography has to attend to the scholarship that's already out there in the process, either in the beginning of the process or throughout the process, I'm trying to go back to the, the literature that's already out there and sometimes toggle back and forth between whatever I'm writing and then whatever the literature is saying, and then going, oh, wait, there's this other element in the literature that I can also, that I can also convey in a story or a vignette or something. Um, so I'm trying to do move back and forth between my story, my experience, and then what the literature also tells us, if that makes sense. Because I think that you have to, it, it's not, it's, for me, it's not good enough to simply tell the story um, and that the story doesn't necessarily stand on its own, that the, the literature is there to help me, um, in fact, make the story more relevant or more insightful. And I don't want to leave some things to chance, right? I want to be able to, to at least if I can, connect it up with what we already know about, uh, dis- in this case, disenfranchised grief. In some ways, I hope it's clear, but I hope it's as messy as it sounds, because it isn't very linear. It isn't a super linear process, at least not for me. It wasn't going through this. You know, there are times when, you know, you got to sit back and take a take a moment to breathe because you are, I mean, I was reliving, you know, every time you write something about the past, you are reliving, reliving it in some ways. And so I had to go back and I had to think, dang, you know, if we had stayed together, like, I would have been this age and, you know, these, this is where I would have been in my life maybe. And, you know, so there's a lot of times when you do have to take breaks. I I personally had to take breaks from it. It didn't just like flow from my fingers, you know, in like a matter of hours, I had to come back to it over, over time um, as well. Would you say overall that you found it to be like a a therapeutic kind of process or or was it something you just felt you had to, to do it? It definitely had its, value. I definitely had some catharsis. I mean, I, you know, I was able to, 
shed some tears about it and, you know, have some sense of relief, but I don't want to oversell how cathartic it was because I still had, I still, you know, when I went to go visit my mom like that, I think it was like that Thanksgiving. I don't, I don't, I don't remember if this is in the paper, but I went to his, his, um, where he was buried. And I, so I had another moment, right. Where I had to have another, it was, so the grief wasn't complete, right. The the catharsis wasn't complete necessarily as a result of this piece, I guess is what I maybe want to say is that I still needed to do some other work, other emotional work that, that required me to like be in the physical space to like see his name carved into the, you know, into the stone and the mausoleum, you know, I needed those types of things too. I needed to just be back in the town where we were, you know, so there were other things that I needed to do that, that I think were also important to the process. And I've never presented that piece either. So, you know, I don't know what it would be like to also, uh, this is probably the most talking I've done about it actually. So, you know, I don't know what it would be like to present it, you know, to a group and and that type of thing. So there's always more work. It's never really done. I think it was somewhat helpful, but I don't want to oversell how helpful, if that makes sense. Yeah, thank you. And thank you so much for sharing it with us and talking about it with us. We really appreciate it. And I must say at this juncture that I am deeply envious of your relationship with your mother. She watches Six Feet Under with you. And before we started recording, you said that she reads all your papers. She does. She does. She is like my best cheerleader in many ways. And I always say like my goal is to make my work accessible to my mom so that if she can read it and understand it, or if she doesn't read if she doesn't understand something, a concept, then I need to do more work to make it more, more accessible to people because, and especially in this, this piece, I was going to say, you know, this, this piece about disenfranchised grief in particular, because on an open source platform, I've had more people contact me Usually most and the most often women who have gone through something similar that say thank you for having done it. And I feel like that's where, you know, my mom becomes like my valuable, you know, kind of companion. It, you know, she's on my shoulder when I'm when I'm doing the work and, and writing. Yeah, she's she's read everything that I've written. Great. Well, we love your mom. <laughs> and it's so powerful to hear that people have, have got in touch with you as well. It's that's really nice. Now we're moving to something slightly different again which is to an article that you have published in Qualitative Inquiry, uh, where you're the lead author on a paper entitled Truth Troubles that looks at the idea of truth. So could you share with us a bit about the premise of that paper and what led you to write it? Yes. So I was, uh, this was another, this was when I was in my doctoral program. I was in actually a qualitative methods class. And we were, we needed, we needed something to do. We were going to interview, we were going to go to qualitative inquiry, the conference, the Congress, I think, I think it's called the Congress of Qualitative Inquiry. Don't quote me on that. I haven't been in a while, but at Champaign-Urbana. And we knew that we were going to be surrounded by a bunch of really prolific qualitative scholars. And so we wanted to see if we could do set up some interviews with some folks. So we feel like that was a good opportunity for us to do a qualitative project, talk to actual experts and uh, see what they had to say. And it just so happened at the same time, Oprah Winfrey had called out James Fry for his book. I think it was a million little pieces, right? And she called him out because he had not been a hundred percent truthful in his telling of his experience with addiction and I, uh, at first, Oprah came out and defended him and said the truth value of the book mattered more 
than whether or not the, the actual elements of the narrative were true. And I thought, you are correct, Oprah. That is exactly, I agree with you. You know, you, you, you're right. But then she came back and, and, and quickly, not, not very long after that, came back and really called James Fry to task and brought him onto her show and like, kind of demanded an apology from him for duping people into, you know, and people had like so embraced the narrative and they had really been enraptured by the story. And I thought, my goodness, like what a, what a 180. And I was not happy with Oprah, not that she ever cared to consult me about this matter at all. But I thought I was like, no, you had it right the first time you had it right. Now I'm not advocating that people lie to sell books and make money and, and profit necessarily. But I think the essence of, of the challenge with that particular text and the essence of what people got from it was where the power of it really lied, right? Where it really existed. Maybe lied is a bad choice of words. Um, but where it really existed was in what what people got from the narrative. And so what we decided to, what this small group of fellow grad students and I decided to do was we would interview some other qualitative scholars and see what they thought about this idea of truth. Is there truth in this life, in this world of life writing? If if we're talking, whether we're talking about memoir or we're talking about autoethnography or any, maybe any other qualitative method, right? You know, is there, is there truth? Like, what does that look like? And is it truth with a capital T? Is it truth with a lowercase t? which is part of the reason why even in the title of the piece, we tried to lowercase t our truth, because we really ultimately concluded that truth was maybe a problematic standard by which to, a capital T truth anyway, was really a problematic standard by which to, by which to assess at least our scholarship, right? And, and especially if it relies on personal narrative and, and storytelling, maybe storytelling broadly, right? Because even, you know, folks who do ethnography, folks who might be doing other qualitative methods, you still have a story that you want to tell, ultimately. And, you know, how much are we supposed to, how much should we be aligning our findings and our reporting of our findings with exactly as they happened, you know, exactly as an event happened. And maybe sometimes that's exactly, that is precisely what you want to do and is exactly what you need to do. And there are other times when Maybe that's not the most important goal. Maybe you can get to the to the truth of an experience in a different way. And as I think one of our participants pointed out, he said, you know, every time I tell a story, the truth of that story changes because I change. Uh, my life experience changes. How I see that, that experience changes. And that's how we probably should be, is that after five years or 10 years, probably shouldn't see this experience exactly the same way. And we probably don't tell the story exactly the same way. So, you know, I always thought that we always want to do a part two to this, but uh, <laughs> to um, look at some other cases. Again, we're not advocating for lying. We're not advocating for, you know, making stories up. But sometimes there is a reason to fictionalize things. There is a reason to exaggerate. There is a reason to have composite characters there are reasons to do all those things that definitely have value and they don't necessarily take away from the truth of uh, an experience or undermine the knowledge that we're creating necessarily. I've got like a random document on my computer that has loads of quotes about 
fiction and truth because I teach you quite a lot of creative writing so I'll be honing that answer <laughs> when we listen back for some more quotes I can borrow from that so thank you very much. Now we've got one again slightly different question about another area that you research which is some recent work I think that you've been you've been doing in relation to spirituality and cancer care. So can you give us a bit of insight into that, please? When I was doing my dissertation, I became interested in how some of the spiritual care was being delivered in hospice settings. And, you know, one of the things I think that's so interesting, I'm sure I can hear one of my religious studies scholar friends smacking my hand when I use the term spirituality because it's complicated. But I think I was really interested in, you know, when I spent time with chaplains that are members of the hospice teams, like how, how they deliver care, whether or not they were really seeing as many people as they could be seeing, in part because of how people understand spirituality and religion and the, the, the ways in which they're entangled. So I had really been interested in the ways in which spirituality presents itself in different health contexts and settings. And for me, spirituality can be related to religion, but not necessarily. I, I personally am of the mind that all people are are seeking meaning in most, you know, and meaning the process of seeking meaning is is about spirituality for me, at least is how I've operationalized it in my work. So even an atheist can have some kind of spiritual life or experience. They may disagree with me. They may not use that kind of language. But what I was really trying to tap into in this work is that chaplains in particular are the people on a hospice team and sometimes in a hospital setting who are best equipped to help us grapple with the big questions. What is the meaning of life? (laughs) Now, they're not going to have the answer, but they're there to help us work through that. What is the meaning of life? Why am I here? Why, Why do bad things? Why are bad things happening to me? What does it mean that I live my life in X, Y, Z ways? You know, and I felt like they were such an underutilized resource sometimes, but that because there was a a religious hinge or tone to it, tinge to it, that people were like, I don't, I'm not really, I don't really want the chaplain. I'm not really interested. I don't want them to proselytize to me, really not realizing that this person was really there to help them sometimes, you know, cope with and grapple with all these like really great areas, they, they're not really, you know, most really wonderful chaplains are happy to exist in that gray area and to, and to be, be with you along that process. So um, eventually, you know, after having tried to try to uplift the chaplain, the role of the chaplain in hospice teams, as a result of my dissertation, I went on to teach a class um, when I was at the university of North Carolina at Charlotte, where, we looked at spirituality in like from childbirth all the way through to things like sexuality, sex and sexuality. I tried to get my students to think about even at the end of life, what role does spirituality play? So we tried to cover a bunch of different topics uh, and think about spirituality in a bunch of different settings like that. Yeah. I'm not doing quite as much work about it as I, as I have been, but it's always, it's always been back there. I think, you know, in cancer care, you know, you may see some people who their spirituality, their faith, their beliefs drive them to, you know, something more fatalistic, like this wasn't, this was meant to be, this was what 
God or Allah had planned for me. And so what does that mean then in terms of how somebody pursues cancer care, if it was always supposed to be this way? And then for other people who may say there's absolutely no role for any kind of higher power, I am it. You know, it is me. There is no, there's nothing after this. And so I'm, you know, at least in the, some of the people that I talk to would be like, I'm, I'm going to live out my life and then this is it. And so there's nothing, there's nothing for me to be worried about. So I've seen both of those things. <laughs> you know, I've seen both of those types of, of people in clinical spaces, people who are very comforted by their, their faith and their spirituality and their, what they believe is the meaning of this life and other people who are really struggling with it you know, having nightmares and, you know, really scared about, about what, what this life is about. Did I do enough? And where am I going afterwards? So I think it's also a question that sometimes because we're so focused on empiricism and we're so focused on what we can see and what is tangible that we forget about this other element that, that operates in people's lives and don't give it as much attention or, or, or credibility or credence that, as we should. But, you know, if, if sometimes it's, it's, again, goes back to me, what we were talking about at the very beginning is like, if we're not asking the question that helps us understand why somebody has come to this decision or this idea, then we're missing out. And for some people, their spirituality is guiding their choices, um, at least in a healthcare context. And I don't think clinicians should be, practitioners should be afraid of inquiring about that. We might actually really learn something. So I think that's another another part of my interest in, in the role of spirituality. That's fascinating. Thank you. And you talked briefly there about your teaching in relation to this. And we were reading a bit about your teaching online thinking, oh, we'd really like to come to your classes. You say that you teach through interviewing, participant observation, self-reflection to interrogate personal, social and political discourse about health in classes that are just generally very hands on. So we'd like to hear a little bit more about the classes you teach and, and why you teach them the way you do. I teach a health communication class and I also have an end of life communication class that I teach pretty regularly. And in that health com, the health communication class, I have my students do a lot of qualitative methods. And I do that in part because they already get quantitative methods. They already have you know, there's actually a requirement, at least in my university, for students to take quantitative reasoning type of course. And we offer, while we offer research methods class in our department, and they do touch on qualitative methods, I know that I know that they spend majority of their time learning how to do more statistical analysis. So I want my students, and I also, because I also get a lot of future physicians in my classes. I want them who take a lot of science classes. They take a lot of laboratory-based classes. I want them to get out of their comfort zone and sometimes write a story <laughs> and and interview pe- and talk to people and interview them. So I have them do those things because I already know that they're getting a lot. There are lots of places and spaces where they're already getting all of the quantitative. I mean, we're immersed in that in our in our culture you know, people are reporting statistics in the paper and, and so on all the time, right? Um, so I know that they're getting exposure to that. So I want them to, as much as they can, have a taste of qualitative methods. So, you know, I have them do a little content analysis as like an early assignment where, you know, they look at a health topic in the news and they look at it from a, bu- a bunch of different print, mostly print outlets, 
print journalism outlets and, and do some mostly qualitative content analysis. And then I also have my students, um, they have a major interview assignment where they have to talk to somebody who's experienced an illness. And it can't just be like the common cold. It needs to be, you know, something else. It can be a broken bone or chronic illness. A lot of times it's uh, cancer. So they have to talk to that person. They have to ask them about their experience in clinical spaces and with family. So they do an interview there and then they have to write it in the form of a story. I try to encourage them to write it in the form of a story. They're very tempted to write it in a um, APA style lit review, you know, method section approach. And I say, no, I don't want that. (laughs) I want you to write this in the form of a narrative and try to do justice to the person's story that you, you know, who, who you spoke with. And then um, I also, it's gotten a little trickier with during the pandemic, but I have my students do um, the ethnographic project. It's kind of, it leans a little, little autoethnographic is a project where students live on the same food budget as someone who receives supplemental nutrition assistance which is in the United States, they call it foods. They used to call it food stamps, but they call it SNAP now, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. And they get, uh, people get in San Diego County, where I am, um, people get about $47 a week for groceries. That's an average. And so my students have to live with some exceptions, because I always have exceptions for people that have like disordered history of disordered eating and you know, any other reason that they might not be able to complete the uh, assignment as described, but they spend a week living on the same food budget and they have to write about that. They have to take notes about their experience using all of their senses and, um, and then write up their experience of what that was like. For many of them, it's quite shocking. And then they get to practice, you know, how do you do things like thick description? How do you, you know, help somebody understand your experience? What types of information do you need to include? You know, how do you write in in an engaging way that you can do, you can do social science and it doesn't have to be statistical, right? You can, you can write in a way that will help people understand the experience of another person. And that is also social science. And that's one of the things I want them to walk away from understanding too. So those are a couple of the major assignments and then my end of life class students also will do an interview based assignment where they interview people and ask them about their their conceptions of dying well and end of life wishes. So they do some other activities in that class too that are kind of similar. Try to make them diff- as different as possible because I get a lot of the same st- small campus, you know, you get a lot of the same students that, that you know take your classes. I, I can see why they want to come back and take all of your classes. That's so wonderful. And we note that you won an, a teaching award for your use of a book called $2 a Day, Living on Almost Nothing in America. And is that is that the, the thing you do with them where you ask? Exactly. So they, they will read that book. Um, it depends. Some semesters I assign it, some semesters not. It just depends. There's so many good published work about, you know, poverty in the U.S. that I sometimes go back and forth about whether or not they – they will read that whole book or read part of it and read some other stuff. But yes, $2 a day. Um, it really is quite eye opening for, for students who, to see that there are people that are just absolutely, they work, they're hardworking people and they're just not making enough money to survive that, that most people that are receiving the SNAP benefit are working people. They're working adults. 
they're not, I mean, so we're trying, I'm trying to also bust a myth that lots of people have about what it looks like for somebody to be living on welfare, right. Or living on a state sponsored, you know, program and what are the challenges. So in $2 a day, they learn that even that sometimes if you make a dollar too much, uh, your income is too high. So you get a better paying job, your income goes up, which is good that you may lose your SNAP benefits. So you may lose the supplemental benefit that will help you, you know, kind of um, thrive. So I, I, I help them. I, I hope it helps them understand, you know, that there's, um, you know, real challenges there. So that's part of the, the what that book helps them understand. Yeah, it sounds like a really powerful, like citizenship, critical education and just super important. And I'm very passionate about the arts and humanities. So I was delighted to see that you're working on an undergraduate medical humanities course. And you've got a grant from your institution to do that. So can you tell us a bit about what that is? Yes, I got a, I got a grant, a little and a stipend to develop a course. Unfortunately, I got it right before the pandemic. And so I was supposed to go to like I was planning to go to a humanities, a medical humanities conference and um, get, you know, hopefully get some ideas for this course um, that I have in mind. But I ultimately, I can say that ultimately my goal is to, because we, because I teach at a a liberal arts institution that is very much committed to having even people who study, who may major in like the natural sciences, we want them to see the value of the humanities. And so we have courses that are very interdisciplinary where we try to bring together arts and science and humanities. Um, and so I wanted to develop a course, especially with those future medical students in mind, where they are essentially learning the value of the humanities and how it can inform their thinking, make them better, more critical thinkers, help them ask better questions, you know, when they go out and work in clinical spaces. I think, not to mention that we know that, you know, oftentimes the arts and the humanities are sometimes the difference between whether or not somebody experiences things like burnout in their clinical um, work and, you know, having writing, you know, having the opportunity to play instruments, you know, even as a mechanism to take a break, you know, turn, turn that kind of side of your brain off. Um, it gives you the opportunity to do that type of thing that the humanities are, are valuable there, but also have lots of valuable insights about, about medicine, about science, that they, those things kind of feed into each other. So I was thinking if I could create a course that would kind of be like an intro, you know, to medical humanities. I just had to figure out how to take the whole of like humanities, you know, and and try to figure out how to encapsulate it into like a 15, 16 week course. So I'm hoping that once we're kind of through this, you know, where we can travel more freely and have conferences in person and those types of things that I'll be able to pull this class together because I, I know I have colleagues on campus who, you know, who are totally game to, you know, impart their wisdom about the theater and about music and, you know, poetry and writing that we can really create a very interesting course, I think, for our students. Great. Well, good luck with it. We hope to hear about it when it's done. Now, before we let you go, we'd like to ask you if you've got any advice that you could give to our listeners that can be like career advice or advice on research or just general life advice. And we'd love it. Yes, I was thinking about this before I went to bed last night. (laughs) Gosh, I have a ton. I always have a ton of advice. I'm one of those people like, 
happy to dish out some free unsolicited advice anytime. <laughs> I'm sure that's what my friends would say. But I think what I would probably say has just, I think this applies to both like professional, personal life. It's just like, be curious, stay curious. I always think like, try not to grasp too hard to to certain beliefs or even values or, you know, ideas to the point that you can't be open and curious. I think that I'm in a place right now in my career where I think my ability to be open has helped me, it's helping me evolve and helping me ask new questions. So, you know, I, I want to be open, you know, open to opportunities, open to ideas. It doesn't mean I want to say yes to everything. I'm going to say yes to everything, but I want to at least be open enough that I can still be curious and hopefully keep asking good questions. And so I think that would be my, my, my probably biggest piece of advice is just like really be curious, try to keep whatever it takes to keep that curiosity open. It's probably my, my, that's, that's where I'm going to, that's where I'm going to end. Cause I could, I could probably give a list of like a bunch of other pieces of advice, but I say, just be curious, you know, be, be, be open, ask the questions, keep having questions. That's perfect. Thank you. Maybe we could have a book called Life Advice from Death Scholars. Yeah, yes, exactly. We should. Oh, thank you so much for, for being here. Oh. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. I it was it was quite fun to talk about some of these projects I haven't thought about in a long time. So Well, I thought this was an amazing episode and I've written down quite a number of things that we can talk about at the moment. And I think, first of all, I really find it fascinating that Gillian is coming from a communication background. I think it's so important that there is research that looks at the communication angle of end-of-life interactions between patients and doctors, patients and their families, and just people in general. What is said in those encounters? What is asked? What is not asked? And what are the assumptions when someone is dying and it's one of the things I've always found fascinating and the main inspiration of my PhD is the assumptions around the notion of home and how it's increasingly been linked to this phrase of we all want to die at home but it's again often not communicated or unpacked if I would say that we think we know what that means but do we really know and I think it's the same with any kind of end-of-life conversation because it's linked to we want to do a good job, but also moral questions of what does a good death look like. There is so much that is assumed and not unpacked. And so I think it's great that someone like Gillian is there to kind of point that out to people. Yeah, and I love how you phrased all of that. It's it's so important and so true and really applicable to, to death studies. And I'm sure many other fields that even that kind of we-ness needs to be unpacked, doesn't it? Around the idea of we don't talk about death that comes up so much, you know, beg to differ that there are many who do and and the idea that, that you can have this kind of broad cultural or social or socio-cultural kind of climate of not wanting to talk about something or agreeing that it's good to die at home or not die at home it's balancing that individualism with what clearly are kind of cultural ideas and I, I like that in terms of cultural text film television popular culture because I think they can reflect sometimes and offer a way and an opportunity to pull apart some of those assumptions or to reflect back on them if we kind of use them in that way. 
So it was lovely to also hear how Gillian is so creatively using books and text in her teaching. I was really inspired to use a a factual but very accessible and thought-provoking mainstream sort of book and then use that as a way to open up really academic discussions. I thought that is fantastic and I would love to take all of these courses. Same. And also how she was one of the assignments was writing a do a project but then write about it creatively I think that engages people's brains in such a different way that I think yeah I also would have loved to have done all of her courses yeah I bet there's a lot of happy students out there that have really learned a lot from these classes I would just I'd love to be like a million me so that I could just send one of myself off to take these courses it'd be great I was really really interested also in Gillian's discussion of truth and memoir and whose truth these are because of course the two of us we discuss memoir a lot we read a lot of memoirs in particular around death and dying and the idea of who gets to own truth I know is something we've both kind of encountered in terms of texts or communications with people around the idea of writing something that reflects one person's truth and not another's how is that boundary defined to what extent is language something that can ever enable us to offer truth because we are confined by the boundaries of language and what we can express within it. If I read something I've written yesterday or the day before in a particular mood or emotional state, I wouldn't want I wouldn't feel it could reflect the full complexity of me. So those kind of truths are tricky there as well. And I just think that's such a really interesting thing to be working with and talking through and to apply it to these quite famous kind of cases around people who are publishing work and and saying things. And then this debate becomes a less academic one, more of one that takes place quite publicly around who gets to say what and how how can we claim that that is true? I find it, first of all, interesting because I feel in the first week of like studying anthropology, one of the catchphrases is there is no truth and like everyone has their own perception of things. I find it fascinating both with a methodology like ethnography where you go out and spend a lot of time with a group of people and then you often write an ethnography which is quite detailed and feels similar to a memoir of or to your own narrative that it's you write that from your own perspective through your own lens but then again yeah how much do you think about the actual product that is there the book and how other people might read it and how other people might have had a different experience of the same situation so I I've, I one of my favorite podcasts is of menu um, by Ed Gamble and James Acecaster and they basically ask a celebrity or a comedian about their dream meal and this week's episode is Richard E. Grant whose wife died in 2021 and he's recently published a memoir but he was talking about how he was also approached to write this memoir which I find very envious. Uh, He was very reluctant at first and also he had put in the agreement I will write the book but then I will send it to my daughter And she has veto power. If she doesn't like it, then the book will not come out. And apparently she didn't have many changes. I think that's an example of where it went well. I also recently on my blog read uh, the book Taste Like War, where someone talks about their mother being diagnosed or the trouble of getting her mother diagnosed with late onset schizophrenia. 
and I've written about the book and I, I really like the book, but there is a sister-in-law on Twitter and whenever I tweet about a book, I get a response with a link to a Goodreads uh, review from the brother <laughs> who has a completely different experience of their mom living with mental illness. And I can see both of those as how she has experienced her relationship with her mother and how her brother has experienced it and then also a sister-in-law. So it, it's fascinating and I think something that also points to sometimes people choose the method of autoethnography as this is an easy thing to do because it's my own life. But as Gillian pointed out, you don't know who else is entangled in that web. And if you write about it or speak about it, how will those people who are involved in the narrative respond to it? Yeah, so much food for thought there about what is is truth, who has ownership over that truth. And I thought it was great as well just to listen to someone talking about ethnography and reflecting on those things as a reminder that all academic work is is kind of written from a personal perspective, isn't it? And we just, it, it degrees of engagement with that, but that to help students think through before they do something, the, those potential things you've been thinking about there, I think is really nice and really a really good example for for those of us out there doing that kind of teaching to think through. Okay, what kind of conversations might it be useful to have before? we do those those sorts of projects and we do those kind of things and I, I'm always impressed by people who are teaching quite a lot of undergraduate who are also really really active researchers and involved in lots of journal editing journal boards things like that because oftentimes you tend to do one on the other like a lot of undergraduate teaching or a lot of more research intensive I'm always really impressed by and, and aspire to people who have that really strong balance there because whilst it can be really exhausting and really hard to to do those different bits of the the work and the different sort of parts of your brain that you need to engage to do all of that I think it brings a real richness both to teaching and to the work you're then doing in that research area and we hope you in like us enjoyed the episode and as it is Halloween month if you are going crazy with your house I think this is particularly for US-based listeners but also if you live elsewhere and you go bonkers over Halloween show us your houses or at least I am always curious about the skulls and the pumpkins and everything just so please tweet us pictures of your weird halloween houses and see you all next month <laughs> thank you for listening to the deaf studies podcast you can find out more about our guests and their work in the show notes or on our website thedevstudypodcast.com if you enjoyed listening to us please leave us a comment follow us on social media at the deaf podcast and of course, spread the word. <laughs>